Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Adam Rovner, who teaches at the University of Denver. Here to talk about his new book, In the Shadow of Zion, Promised Lands Before Israel, published in 2014 by New York University Press. Adam, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Hi, welcome. Thank you very much, Jason. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So, Adam, we, we sort of take for granted um, that the Jewish state in, is in Israel. Uh, before 1948, there were other possibilities. Is that right? And how did you get interested in exploring them? Yes, absolutely. There were many possibilities, and some of those, I think, were actual real plans. That is, that there were diplomatic negotiations going on for them, and I'll talk about those in a minute. I got interested because way back in 2003, when I was working on my dissertation, I was looking for a kind of obscure Yiddish article that appeared in a Freelander publication. The magazine was called Freeland. It was the official organ of the Freeland League for Jewish Colonization. And uh, I had never heard of such a league. I'd never heard of anything like it. It was published back in the 60s. In fact, the issue I was looking at was from 1968. And I came to learn while I was looking for this issue and after I found it, that this was a movement dedicated to creating a Jewish homeland, some kind of autonomy, at least cultural, if not political, somewhere other than the biblical land of Israel. And since the magazine I was looking at came out in 68, I was uh, pretty surprised that anything existed that late, certainly, although most of the group's activities ended by 1948, as you said. And, and so you mentioned that these were real possibilities? They were close to actually happening? Several of them were very close. What we're talking about here is a Jewish nationalist ideology movement that was called territorialism. Territorialism was active from, let's say, 1903 to about the issuing of the Balfour Declaration, 1917. And then it was reborn in the era of insecurity that coincided with the rise of the Nazi Reich in Europe. So we're talking again from the late 30s, and it existed again until about 48. That's where most of the years of the actual concerted effort, the actual plans were were launched and and, uh, investigated. And so what exactly is territorialism? Territorialism is a Jewish nationalist movement that is dedicated to creating some territorial entity. Usually it is described as having political autonomy or a high degree of political autonomy, in some cases sovereignty, in some cases cultural autonomy under the protection of another sovereign state. The idea is that territory that is held by Jews or perhaps in trust for Jews, where Jews are protected um, either by themselves or another state entity, would guarantee Jewish survival and indeed encourage a flourishing of Jewish culture. So 
you know, we could break off a little bit of New York and set it aside and give it just to the Jews as their own territory, that would be sort of, you know, their own little area to control? Is that is that an idea? Yeah, well, some people claim that it already happened. Um, but, yeah, you no. Know, in fact, if we wanted to go back, really, to the uh, first advent of what I would consider a kind of political territorialism, it actually occurred in New York in the 1820s in upstate New York in an island, on an island called Grand Island today, which is right near Buffalo. And a man by the name of Mordecai Manuel Noah, who was a major Jewish figure, perhaps the major Jewish figure of the 19th century, first half, he launched this idea to uh, purchase land on Grand Island, which is in the Niagara River, for a Jewish sanctuary. That idea was called Ararat. And many people have written on this topic, um, not the least of which, certainly, is uh, the great historian Jonathan Sarna. And so tell us a little bit, um, before we get into the other um, case studies that you look at, what, what research did you do? Did you travel to all the sites, including upstate New York? Yeah, that's exactly right. What I did was, rather than simply, although it wasn't simple at all, uh, rely on archival documents and secondary sources, I felt like I needed to also uh, pursue what um, you could call an archive of the feet. I needed to go to these places to see them. And in many cases, I really did learn quite a bit just from being there, not just of the history and the context, but also, you know, from a from a layman's point of view, because I'm not an agronomist, I could see something about the value of the land, the topography of the land, uh, even today, because most of the places that were explored were not particularly developed in the last hundred years or so. So, I, yeah, I was in upstate New York, which is the least of the exotic um, locales. I was in Kenya and did some archival work in Kenya, though there's not much archival documents that are held in Kenya. I was in Angola in southwest Africa, which uh, was a very difficult place to conduct any research in, did some archival work there. I found some very interesting newspapers from the era of planned colonization there in 1912, 1913. I was in Madagascar, which is off the coast of East Africa. Uh, I was in Tasmania, the island state of Australia. And I was in Suriname in South America on the Atlantic coast, not far from what I guess you'd call the, the Caribbean areas of, say, Curaçao and Aruba, places like that. You say that the book is a is a shadow history of Zionism. What do you mean by that? And how did uh, you know Zionism, the idea that the Jewish homeland would be in um, Israel, emerge victorious? Well, you know, this, this is kind of what my my book explores. I called it a shadow history. I guess that it's that seemed to me a good metaphorical term, an image that I thought would um, would convey something of the legacy of territorialism, which was in many periods, many years. Uh, the equal to, if not exceeded the popularity of Zionism in many ways and in many times and places, it seemed more realistic than what we know today as Zionism. And yet the history is in the shadows. It's a period of Jewish nationalism, of Jewish uh, agitation, political and cultural foment and political action that has really received very, very little attention, quite surprisingly, in secondary sources. In Yiddish, there's 
really about one uh, history. It's rather polemical. In Hebrew, there's a, a, a couple books. One's really more of an anthology of other people's research. There's a, an excellent professor at the University of Haifa named Gur al Rui, who has written a book about this. It's due out in English. Um, there, there's my book, and there's a few books out there in other languages about specific plans. So you, we, we mentioned um, Mordechai Manuel Noah. Um, what was his main reasoning for wanting to start this um, colony in upstate New York, and, and what eventually happened? Well, um, since you asked me, uh, my opinion, others might disagree, but my sense is quite clear that Mordecai Manuel Noah, when he was sent as a consul to the Barbary states, that is North Africa, in the early 19th century, he encountered Jews in England, in France, in Spain, and as well in what today would be Tunisia and elsewhere in North Africa, and understood the misery of many of their circumstances and the lack of benefits that, uh, pre-emancipation. He believed that were he to create a territorial enclave, a refuge, he called it, a sanctuary for the oppressed Jews of Europe in America, which he, he was a red-blooded American patriot. Uh, he believed that America guaranteed religious freedom, as indeed it, it has for, for most peoples at most times, uh, that he could preserve a large portion of the Jewish people then enduring persecution, especially in uh, what we guess we would call Central Europe or, or today uh, Germany after the hep-hep pogroms of the early 19th century. He would bring them, he would encourage them to come and settle in what was then a border region of America in upstate New York. So, so he really had the well-being of the Jewish community, his co-religionists elsewhere, in the forefront of his mind when he launched this plan. Mm-hmm. You know, after the chapter on Noah, we kind of jump ahead to the early 20th century, which is really sort of the heart of territorialism, Correct. as you mentioned. Who, who is uh, Israel Zangwill? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the uh, plan for the East African Protectorate. Yeah, and that's something I should state about my book. Now, I'm trained uh, in in literary studies. I, I'm a comparatist, do comparative literature, teach English literature, Hebrew literature, a little bit of Yiddish literature, often through a historic lens, a contextual lens. And I got into this what is essentially uh, often seen as the purview of historians because the figures who all launched these movements were all in some way significant writers. Mordecai Manuel Noah was a very well-known playwright and editor and journalist in the 19th century uh, in the U.S. Israel Zangwill was probably the most well-known Jew in the English-speaking world, and he was a famous writer. I mean, uh, he was an intimate of, of politicians in England, uh, of uh, politicians in the U.S. as well. He was very pro-American, looked up to America in many ways. He written several very popular story collections, later uh, novels and plays, and was incredibly influential. He was a British citizen who grew up in London's East End, the child of immigrants in London. And the other sort of big writer that appears, you know, in the background in your book is uh, is Herzl, right? So why were why were writers so influential? Were they able to sort of uh, dream up, you know, ideas that others couldn't? I think that's true. So so Zangwill, who who really launched territorialism as a as a element of Zionism, I could say, he was responsible for Herzl's successes and introductions to important 
uh, people of power in England. Many people no longer know who Zhang Luo is, although he was an important writer. He was also very central to the Zionist movement. Um, and he, as a writer, obviously felt a degree of affinity with Herzl, not just personally and because of uh, Herzl and Zengel's own charisma, but I think also as writers, as, as playwrights, as, uh, as um, uh, journalists. And so that affinity, that ability to imagine was a connection. Zangwill himself singled out Mordecai Manuel Noah, who, you know, about uh, uh, 75 years earlier, as another man who was able to imagine the future. So this notion that writers can imagine a better reality, they are, they are not necessarily, we don't often think of them as, uh, as realists, uh, although sometimes writers do. Zangwill felt himself to be a realist, and he, he imagined a better reality. And that led to the rise of territorialism. The other writers I talk about, as you said, Herzl, certainly. Um, we often forget that he, he was uh, a writer uh, and an important one as well, not just for his Zionist work. And uh, Alfred Dublin, the German writer, great modernist, was a, an early ideologue of the rebirth of, of territorialism in the 1930s. So the, the, the writers sort of dreamed up the ideas. What about the sort of day-to-day work? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the ITO. Yeah, so the ITO, ITO, the, it stands for the Jewish Territorial Organization. Uh, why isn't it JTO? Well, it doesn't roll off the, the tongue, and the ITO does, and it was for the Yiddisher, <laughs> the, the Yiddisher Territorialistische Organisation. That, that was the, the uh, original acronym. Um, that was a group that formed, uh, coalesced around Zangwill in 1905 uh, during and immediately after the Zionist Congress, the Zionist Congress that formally rejected the East Africa proposal, the so-called Uganda plan, um, and the frustration of many Zionists at the time, uh, and many leading Zionists, including Zangwill, who was at the he was, he was a major figure, uh, led to the establishment of the Ito in a walkout of the Zionist Congress. They walked, uh, you know, a few hundred yards away and started a kind of rival organization. Um, although they saw themselves as carrying on the real work of Herzl as political Zionists, uh, they were shunned and indeed uh, attacked by the Zionist movement. In 1905, that was the breaking point. That is when Zionism uh, officially mandated that one could only be a Zionist if one paid one's uh, shekel and uh, agreed that the Jewish homeland would rise in the biblical state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the successor to Ito was the Freeland League, right, which you touched on earlier. Yes. How were they different, and, and what, what, what lessons had they learned from the Ito's failure? Well, the Freeland League arose as a, a, I guess we could say, a reincarnation of the Ito, quite specifically, in the 1930s. Uh, again, as I mentioned, Alfred Dublin was a major ideologue. The um, other important figures, the Yiddish writer and editor, um, poet Melech Ravich was um, involved as well, um, and Isaac Nachman Steinberg, who had been a left social revolutionary in uh, Tsarist Russia, had after the Bolshevik Revolution had served in Lenin's first cabinet. He was also a playwright who had won some awards and was a noted journalist as well um, and jurist. These 
men helped to form the core of the Freeland League. And we call them in Yiddish a Freelandistin. They were the ones who worked to revive the Ito idea. In fact, Zangwill's widow was a member of this, as were many leading political figures and cultural figures in England. The idea was to create an immediate territorial entity to serve as a ground for saving Jews in the late 30s from anti-Semitism rising in Poland and Germany. Right, and as the decades go on, the um, impetus to to find a, a, a protectorate or a Jewish homeland seems to get stronger, right? Because there's more, uh, you know, the, the conditions in, in Europe seem to be worsening. That's right. There's more urgency. Um, and what we see, and this has been noted by uh, the scholar I mentioned earlier, al Rui, as well, that as the, uh, the sense of darkness uh, gets deeper for the Jews in Europe, we see the humanitarian crisis grows, we see the Ito forming and attracting a great deal of adherence on the street, what we call the Jewish street. Um, we can talk about Jews in, in the Pale of Settlement who uh, eagerly awaited updates from the Ito, from their agents who helped with immigration. Many of them ultimately did uh, emigrate, whether they came to the U.S. or elsewhere. Um, and again, that rise in the 30s with the rise of Nazism and fascism in Europe we see another rebirth and a repopularity of the territorial idea under the Freeland League. The Freeland League originally in the minutes of their meeting, they even thought about calling their group the Ito, the new Ito. My favorite chapter is uh, the one about Tasmania. Maybe you can tell us about uh, Isaac Nachman Steinberg and, and who is Critchley Parker? Yeah, well, I'm glad you, that, that's your favorite chapter. I think it's uh, pretty remarkable chapter um, as as well, just a historical chapter. I'm not just praising my own writing there. Um, this is the story of an effort by the Freeland League, who was then more or less led by Isaac Nachman Steinberg. He came to Australia to pursue negotiations for an area in the Northwest Territory, an area called the Kimberley Region, um, which is a partially tropical, partially desert region. Um, the northwest of Australia. Once that plan sort of stalled, he was approached by a Christian uh, man, a young man by the name of Critchley Parker Jr., who was deeply involved with uh, the notion of saving Jews. Partially, this was because he had a an affair of the heart, perhaps of the flesh as well with a Jewish journalist named Carolyn Isaacson, who was involved with refugee resettlement in Australia and Melbourne. And uh, she contacted Steinberg and was able to connect him with Critchley Parker Jr., who was very well connected politically because his father was a noted mine, uh, uh, mining owner and, and publisher. And uh, from there, this plan for Tasmania really took on a great deal of uh, momentum, and the premier, that is the leader of Tasmania at the time, was willing to grant a large concession to the Jews. But Critchley Parker tragically died, and with his death, when he was out there surveying the land for Jewish settlement, the whole plan came to an end. He's, uh, as uh, you know, we could say, he's probably the only Christian Australian who died during World War II to provide a 
rescue for the Jews of Europe. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a terrible irony because he died in um, the early 40s in the spring, right about the time that the gas chambers in Auschwitz came online. Mm-hmm. Steinberg, though, was um, undeterred. What, what was his next move? His next move was to come to, well, he tried to come to the U.S., but the U.S. did not want to let him in. The FBI had amassed files on him. They felt him to be a subversive. They thought he was a communist, a Marxist, even though he was not a communist and a Marxist. You know, The finer degrees of ideological commitment among revolutionaries was poorly misunderstood by FBI agents and poorly understood probably to this day. So he did make it into Canada where one of his daughters, Ada, was living, and she was able to help him get into Canada. And from there, he was finally able to immigrate to the U.S. uh, in the 40s, thanks to the involvement of Eleanor Roosevelt, who was an intimate of uh, Ada Steinberg's employer. So again, we have these personal webs, which are quite fascinating, and the FBI tailed Steinberg for a while and had informants working to check him out when he came to New York, and when he once was in New York, he has reestablished a kind of American branch, or established an American branch of the Freeland League and working with his compatriots in England and in Australia and elsewhere, he launched a very serious effort to create a Jewish homeland in what was then called Dutch Guiana today in South America. And that plan was approved by the Surinamese Parliament, the Staten, and it was it, it was also approved by the leaders of Holland, the Netherlands at the time. Um, but once Israel was established, that plan was suspended. In fact, to this day, it remains suspended. It's never formally been uh, closed as an option. So, so the attempts to establish a Jewish homeland or territory in Kenya, Angola, Madagascar, Australia, Suriname—they they faced really high barriers, and, and they were, you know, they, they had a very uh, low chance of succeeding. But, but so did the. Uh, you know, the project in Palestine, why did some seams succeed and others not? And and what do we learn by studying the failed experiments? Well, you know, Jason, if you were to look at the quality of soil, at the demographics, at the political obstacles, at the uh, state of raw materials, if you were to look at the health situation, the malaria, for example, the cholera in uh, Palestine in the early 20th century, late in the early 20th century, you would probably come to the conclusion, as noted scientists did, scientists working for the Ito or for the Freeland League, that, you know, the highlands of western Kenya or the highlands of the Bengala Plateau in Angola were better. There was more development. There were fewer uh, native peoples. There was a better health climate, there was more natural resources, there was more fertility of the land. Indeed, that, you know, in many ways remains the same today. These places are are unexploited and undeveloped. Um, So the fact that the Ito plans were realistic is often forgotten. They're seen or dismissed in footnotes when they're considered at all as sort of madcap dreamers. But really, the Zionists were the one who had the madcap dreams, who had the crackpot ideas, it just so happens that their ability to um, 
to exceed, to imagine something that exceeded the demographic or geographic determinism was greater than the so-called realism, we might say, of the territorials. What we can learn from this is that uh, something very important. I think we have, uh, you know, Benedict Anderson's claims about an imaginary, you know, having an imaginary community as a state is important, but I think we can also learn that some states only remained imaginary. What the difference here, I think, is, and I believe uh, my colleague Goral Roy would agree with me, is that there needs to be a kind of mythos of place for a nation to develop. It's not just the imagination. We can imagine a homeland anywhere. We need a mythos of place. So perhaps we can say an imaginative community based on a myth, a mythos of, of connection. doesn't mean it's not true. Um, I mean that in a, in a uh, more expansive sense of a, of a spiritual connection, perhaps even, to a place uh, is, is the defining factor in the establishment of the state. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about these um, possibilities, um, what might have been, does it change the way we think about uh, modern Zionism uh, and the relationship between you know, the state of Israel and the diaspora? Does it change our relationship? I don't know. I think it helps to, you know, one of the things that is a mistake is to think that Zionism and the establishment of the state of Israel was a foregone conclusion. It was not. And it was fought for and longed for uh, politically on battlefields and sacrifices were, were great by individuals there and elsewhere who supported the creation of the state of Israel. To consider it as having in, been an inevitable outcome is to seriously misunderstand history. Nothing is inevitable. The idea of inevitability can only develop in retrospect, and that, I believe, is an existential illusion. When we look at the possibilities, the proposals, the diplomatic efforts, the scientific investigation committees that the ITO, the Zionists, and the Freeland League sent out, we can see that there were real possibilities, perhaps not probabilities, but certain the the ability to succeed was in many places. I think the ability to succeed in Western Kenya, the ability to succeed in Angola, perhaps, were, were the greatest. And, and maybe in Suriname as well, the ability to succeed there would have been greater. So that, to me, is an important aspect to remember when we review. I think well to understand that uh, there are many places where Jews can and have flourished and, and need to flourish. It was certainly important to Jewish identity. The state of Israel is certainly uh, an important achievement, but um, there may as well be greatness developed in the diaspora. Before I let you go, Adam, why do you think these stories haven't been fully told before? And do you think that you brought... Um you know, a particular insight as a, as a literary scholar? Uh, well, I hope so. I, I mean, I, I think that these stories aren't told because they were failures. And it is, in some ways, natural and perhaps easier to deal with that which was successful, that which was an accomplished or became an accomplished fact. None of the Ito plans, none of the Freeland League plans came to fruition. So to study... What might have been is not typically something that historians do. I think as a scholar of literature and, and 
uh, as a person who is invested in literature, I think I can maybe understand these writers who pursued these plans as imaginative solutions to real-world problems, as an effort to create kinds of, of utopias or Jewish utopias in far-flung locations. So that that, that effort, that, that instinct to create something is something that as a literary scholar I think I was able to bring. That's not from real solid, I hope, uh, archive work in uh, the Central Zionist Archives and elsewhere there, in Yad Vashem, in the United States, in England, many archives there, especially the National Archives, which are great, archives in Suriname, archives in Angola, as I mentioned, um, uh, some archival material as well got from, from France, there's not much in Madagascar, unfortunately, and some great archival material as well in Tasmania and in Melbourne. So I, I really tried to tried to beat the ground to see what I could raise in terms of the actual paper records. Well, Adam, we've taken up a lot of your time. So any parting thoughts you'd like to share? And uh, what are you working on next? Um, I'm not entirely certain what I'm working on next. I just completed an article about uh, Zev Jabotinsky's geographic imagination. I was interested in him because he was responsible for the first geographic atlas published in Hebrew. And I was interested in this notion of what is the the geographic imagination of Jews in the modernist era, the state-building era, I suppose, of the early 20th century. Um, But I've got a few other things up my sleeve. And one thing in particular I'm looking for for a book, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Okay. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is In the Shadow of Zion, Promised Lands Before Israel, published in 2014 by NYU Press. The author is Adam Rovner. Thanks for listening, and check us out next time on New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason.